This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. I'm Jennifer Shutt, budget and appropriations reporter, and joining us this week is my colleague Niels Lesniewski, our chief correspondent covering the White House and Congress. And today we are going to take a bit of a look ahead to the rest of July and early part, we hope, of August in terms of all the work that the House and Senate think they need to get done during that amount of time to advance Democrats' legislative agenda So, Niels, can you break down for us just sort of an overview of what it is, mostly the Senate, but also the House a little bit, uh, need to get done in the next few weeks um, in order to, you know, check off some legislative accomplishments that that Democrats are hoping to make? Sure. The, and it's, it's good to be with everyone. I would say that certainly the first uh, priority for, Senate Democrats in particular, uh, is going to be trying to figure out how to uh, both come up with the actual legislative text of this bipartisan uh, infrastructure package uh, that has a framework that is out publicly already. Uh, I think now 22 senators from both parties uh, are involved in that blueprint, uh, and then trying to figure out how to do that while also crafting a budget resolution uh, that will enable the the Democrats to uh, advance legislation probably in the fall uh, that would be another package of President Biden's uh, priorities more broadly that don't have uh, bipartisan support. And I think the real question uh, that needs to be answered in in July is how you pass the bipartisan uh, infrastructure piece of the puzzle uh, and not uh, sort of lose Republican votes along the way while you are also, if you are the Democrats, talking about a budget resolution that is clearly going to spend way more money uh, and raise more taxes than uh, than the Republicans would ever want to go along with. Oh, and by the way, and this should never really be an oh and by the way, but oh and by the way, the debt limit is going to run, uh, the suspension runs out at the end of the month of July, and frankly, uh, no one seems to know for sure when exactly the X date, the date by which the, the debt limit will need to either be raised or further suspended uh, will actually arrive uh, both uh, outside groups like the Bipartisan Policy Center, the Treasury Department. No one really knows for sure whether it's August, September, when it's going to be because the the receipts uh, and frankly, the state of the economy has been in such flux because of uh, the pandemic. 
Yeah. So lots for lawmakers to address during the next few weeks. Let's try to break these down kind of one by one, um, even though as always with Congress, even though things are a bit separate and moving independently, everything is always sort of interconnected and impacting everything else that's um, in line behind it, sort of like a row of dominoes. Uh, so let's just start with the budget resolution, right? The budget resolution is Congress's tax and spending blueprint, uh, not a bill, doesn't become law, is usually a chance for the majority to party to have kind of big picture debates about what it wants to do on discretionary spending, mandatory spending, and taxes, not only in the upcoming fiscal year, but usually the 10-year budget window. And so this is something that also unlocks the budget reconciliation process, which allows whatever party is in the majority, right now Democrats, to move legislation through the Senate without needing to meet that 60-vote cloture threshold or, you know, as some people refer to it as the legislative filibuster that a lot of progressives want to get rid of. So the budget resolution uh, is sort of the first step in the annual budget and appropriations process, but this year it's also the first step to getting to an eventual reconciliation bill that Democrats want to use to address in a, an array of issues, you know, universal pre-kindergarten, two years of free community college, lots of climate change initiatives, dozens of other things focused on the care economy. And so it sounds like in July, or even as we speak, really, the Senate Budget Committee is kind of taking the lead on this in terms of drafting that budget resolution and then advancing it to the floor sometime in the next several weeks. So Niels, how complicated of a process is it going to be to write a budget resolution in a 50-50 Senate? Um, and what are some of the stumbling blocks that Democrats are hoping to avoid uh, during the next few weeks? Well, when it, when it comes to, to crafting uh, the, the budget resolution itself, uh, they have the advantage, oddly enough, of if they are going to run the risk of running into problems at the committee level, uh, they can uh, simply discharge it because we are past the ostensible statutory deadline uh, by which the budget committee should have already discharged its budget or reported out its budget resolution. Uh, so the some of the uh, procedural complications that that Senator Schumer and the Democrats have run into in other matters. Uh, probably won't be as significant uh, when it comes to the actual budget resolution. But the the real uh, challenge is going to be coming up with numbers for the reconciliation instructions uh, that, that all 50 uh, Democratic caucus members can agree to. Uh, and, and certainly... That's going to be the matter of how do you really sort of get Senator Manchin from, from West Virginia on the same page as Chairman Sanders from Vermont, who, of course, <laughs> leads the budget committee these days. And, and, and remember that the only thing that is actually in the budget resolution um, in terms of reconciliation instructions is is sort of 
broad directives to committees. There, there are targets for the amount by which the deficit needs to either be uh, increased or decreased within a committee of jurisdiction. Uh, so you're going to expect probably a large revenue raising number to go uh, to the finance committee, uh, but that number may not be as big as it seems because they're also going to be the committee that probably will have a piece of the 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 healthcare uh, spending, uh, essentially, and so this is going to be part of the the question when you go to read the budget resolution. There's a lot of reading between the lines as to what they're actually uh, intending for the committees uh, to report out. Right, and the budget resolution is going to um, when it heads to the Senate floor is going to trigger uh, a process that I'm not sure anyone actually enjoys participating in, even though it tends to last all night. Um, and that, of course, is the votorama, where when the Senate brings up its budget resolution, uh, any senator is really allowed to offer more or less any amendment to the budget resolution. And this triggers a very lengthy uh, hours long, usually into the following morning voting process on the Senate floor, uh, where members of, you know, both parties really try to challenge the members of the other party uh, to tough votes on various policy issues. And this is something that we've already experienced twice this year on that fiscal 21 budget resolution that set up reconciliation instructions for the COVID-19 relief bill, and then on the COVID-19 relief bill uh, as a reconciliation package itself. And so this will be, uh, when this happens, our third voterama of the year, most likely with a fourth later in the year. Uh, and Republicans, you know, are really opposed to what Democrats want to do through this reconciliation process. Uh, and speaking in Kentucky this week, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, you know, he really kind of laid this out as almost a, you know, division about what the future of the country looks like. And he said, quote, I don't think we've had a bigger difference of opinion between the two parties over the best thing to do for America than we have right now, end quote. And he said that Republicans are going to make passing, eventually passing that budget reconciliation process, uh, particularly hard for Democrats. And I think, you know, that that sort of endeavor and that type of narrative and challenge is really going to start during this voterama, don't you think? Oh, oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the, the um, scope of uh, what are effectively non-binding amendments, but, but nonetheless are, are sort of things that, that members have to vote on, senators have to vote on, uh, in the budget resolution voterama is, is practically unlimited. And there are always some uncomfortable uh, votes in the, that sequence, I can think back to past years where you've had, you know, questions about uh, the now once again stopped uh, Keystone XL pipeline project being one where you often find the the Republican side prevailing because of um, more moderate Democrats and, and Democrats from from uh, production states, but the reality is going to be how much then of those amendments could actually be adopted and how much then the House Democrats have to um, sort of grit their teeth and, and agree to vote for 
Because remember, because of the way this process seems to be setting up, uh, the House is going to be facing the take it or leave it uh, prospect on the budget resolution. And so, you know, this is not a case where there is likely going to be a negotiation back and forth uh, between the two chambers on the final language. Uh, it's it's really just going to be the resolution that comes out of the Senate that the um, that the, uh, the the House uh, leadership is most likely going to whip and try and get uh, uh, to pass as is as the method of advancing uh, President Biden's agenda. Yeah, and assuming that the House Democrats do accept that Senate budget resolution. Uh, you know, that sort of gets both chambers going on the reconciliation process that we expect to last into the fall. Uh, but the Senate also has more work to do than just, you know, the budget resolution during this July work period. Uh, Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer has said that he also wants to uh, debate and vote on that bipartisan infrastructure proposal um, and so far, they do, Democrats um, and the Republicans who were very active in negotiating that bipartisan infrastructure proposal, uh, you know, they still haven't released legislative text. We still haven't seen a lot of details on how they plan on paying for it. Um, we still haven't seen a sort of score from the Congressional Budget Office. And so, you know, even though there was that, you know, big sort of you know, pat yourself on the back moment at the White House when they released a framework on that bipartisan infrastructure bill. There's still a lot of steps to go in July and a lot of areas where, you know, this group might not actually end up being able to approve this bipartisan infrastructure bill, right? Uh, that's certainly possible. I mean, one thing that you you wonder about is how the scoring for parts of that bill and some of the supposed pay-fors will go. Um, for those of us who uh, have been following these sorts of debates for a very long time, you know that you sometimes run into these fairly amorphous-looking uh, pay-fors. And this one in particular in that blueprint uh, framework has uh, one that is particularly unusual to me, which is they there is some there is some of it that is supposedly paid for by the effective investment in infrastructure itself, what we might call uh, dynamic scoring. And I don't think having not seen any CBO numbers yet, um, I, I really wonder how much of this is going to be quote unquote paid for by the um, supposed increased economic activity and future revenues that could be generated from, you know, having better highways and water systems and uh, ports and, and all the rest that may end up in this package. Um, you know, there, there's going to be a lot of this that is not actually paid for, quote unquote, with revenue, but with, with potential revenue that could come uh, from that infrastructure investment. And then assuming that the Senate Democrats and Republicans are able to pass that bipartisan infrastructure proposal, it sounds like Speaker Nancy Pelosi's plan in the House is just to sort of hang on to that bill uh, until the Senate later this year, most likely sometime this fall, uh, is able to send over a reconciliation package. And so while 
you know, if the Senate is able to send over that budget resolution, the House is likely to take it up and attempt to pa- adopt that budget resolution. This bipartisan infrastructure proposal isn't likely to actually get approved by Congress until later this fall. And so that is sort of another interesting dynamic in this because Republicans are not particularly happy that Speaker Pelosi plans to just kind of wait um, on this bipartisan infrastructure proposal until Democrats are able to approve reconciliation in the Senate. And so that is going to be one of those sort of fascinating sort of undercurrents of everything else that's going on in Congress during the next few months Um, particularly with bipartisan talks on other issues as well. Um, And that sort of leads us into uncertainty about the debt limit um, and all of the issues that we're seeing here and sort of some of the back and forth on when exactly Congress needs to either raise the debt limit to a certain number or suspend the debt limit through a certain date. And so can you talk to us a little bit about you know, why this is an issue that Congress comes to, uh, you know, sometimes every couple of years, sometimes every few months. Um, and what are some of the repercussions if lawmakers don't get it right? Uh, the, the repercussions are almost untold levels of calamity, uh, particularly in the, the financial markets. Uh, if the full faith and credit of the United States comes into question whether or not the Treasury will make its debt payments, uh, you know, that means that interest on any sort of Treasury bond becomes suspect. And the value of of, of Treasury treasury, uh, notes becomes suspect. And at that point in time, you have real questions about uh, whether or not the U.S. dollar should be the reserve currency uh, for really for the world, and so the 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 consequences are hard to fathom and and really not really knowable uh, exactly, and so that's why everyone tries to to avoid this. Now, every few years we run into this situation where most recently they've used this method of suspending the debt limit where they set a date certain by which it's supposed to be raised. And then there is this fairly convoluted process through which the treasury can use uh, extraordinary measures, which aren't all that extraordinary all the time, uh, to figure out to sort of extend the date past that deadline date. Um, The issue is that this has become something that is always used as sort of a bludgeon by the minority party uh, in Congress uh, to try and exact some sort of concessions. And it's going to be a tough time for the Democrats, frankly, to be needing concessions on the debt limit when they're also trying to pass all sorts of large uh, spending and tax programs. There's not a lot of room for the give and take. Uh, the sort of normal horse trading uh, that there would be necessarily. And so the question for me is going to be, and I think the question that we're going to be asking is, at what point do they just have to sort of see if a clean debt limit uh, increase or suspension uh, will pass basically without the rest of 
the usual sort of array of offsets or spending cuts or long-term budget changes or or whatever that, that we may normally see? So lots of complicated legislative negotiation and floor votes coming up in the next few weeks, uh, which myself and Niels and several of our colleagues will be tracking as we head into this July work period. Niels, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. That does it for us today. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can always drop us an email. The address is cqpodcast, one word, at cqrollcall.com. The CQ Budget Podcast is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company. Thank you all for listening. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. And I'm Jennifer Shutt, budget and appropriations reporter. You can always stay up to date by subscribing to the CQ Budget Newsletter. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, NPR One, or just Google the phrase CQ Budget Podcast. And we'll be back next week. <laughs>